This is our final shear in the series. I mentioned last week that originally I had intended it to be a two-part series, but there was just so much that I thought was important and relevant, so uh, we ended up dividing it up into three. Uh, the first week was kind of more philosophical, hashkafic, had to understand aging from the perspective of the aging person, and also uh, had to understand uh, what it's like to go through the process of kibarav aim uh, when your parents are aging. And those were parallel discussions, but not, uh, not identical. And then last week we began the halakhic issues of what are the responsibilities of a parent to his or her children in general. And then we started to discuss some of the issues that are unique as parents can get older and infirm, both in terms of taking care of them physically. We noted that in the Gemara, the most basic definition of kibarav aim is not giving them nachas. I'm not saying that's not part of the mitzvah, but that's not the most basic part. The most basic part is taking care of your parents' physical needs. And it's a certain irony that for most, in a normal course of events, for most of your and your parents' lives, you don't really have that many opportunities to do that. Right? If you go over to your perfectly healthy middle-aged parent and say, you know, can I tie your shoe? They would probably look at you like, the bismah sugar. What are you, you weird? Right? Or anything else. Can I, you know, again, you, you could still help them in certain ways even when they're young and healthy. But still, it's actually as they would get older or infirm that that mitzvah and the opportunities to fulfill the mitzvah in the most simple and straightforward way actually really come uh, to the fore. Uh, and then we discussed toward the end of uh, the year, the second part of that year, we discussed particular challenges as they really get older, especially if they become as mental infirmity uh, or other things such as that coming in. And um, we even discussed, you know, the third rail, uh, the sensitive question uh, of, uh, you know, when can you send mommy or daddy to the nursing home? Uh, we discussed that again. Obviously very complex. No shear could uh, give up definitive stock for all scenarios. But we did discuss that last week. This week I want to finish up with the unit uh, and discuss two related uh, points, which I think are uh, equally important. Uh, number one, if we speak about, uh, we discussed last week, hiring an aide, what we call in Israel, hiring a holy Filipino, uh, and or a nursing home. Um, so this brings to the fore, which we didn't discuss explicitly, uh, the question of who has to pay for all this. Uh, what are the child's financial responsibilities, or are they, that we want to discuss now? And then last but not least, the second half of today's year, I want to discuss specifically the issues of physically taking care of one's uh, parent. Are th- we said that that's the essence of the mitzvah. Are there things that a child cannot do? And therefore, specifically, I want to speak about um, can, a parent, can a child bathe his or her parent? And I guess by analogy, it just... That would be similar maybe to helping them go to the bathroom. There's pros and cons to both of those scenarios, but they both exist in real life. I also want to discuss, if necessary, restraining a parent. Um, And even in less extreme or uh, sad scenarios... You know, can you give, if, if, you're, if you know what you're doing, can you give your, your parent uh, an IV or a shot or other things uh, such as that? You know, if they have diabetes and you need to... You know, there are all sorts of things which uh, come up which are very interesting halakhically. So uh, let's start with the money. Okay, <laughs> if you see source number one, this is actually a debate in the Gemara. The Gemara asks the source number one, Iboyilhu, there was a question, me shall me. Well, now you've said all these things a child has to do to their parent. For his or her parent, who has to pay for this? Rabbi Omer, Michel Ben. Rabbi says, and if I didn't know any better, 
uh, I would think this is a very reasonable position, honestly. If you're telling me I have to do it, so if you tell me I have to have an esrog, I have to buy the esrog. You tell me I have to light Shabbos candles. Well, I, doesn't have to. Obviously, you have to pay for it. If you have to do it, we all know being a religious Jew is expensive. So now it's another one. You have to pay for keeping our vein. I don't think that's crazy. That's the opinion of Rabbi Huda. However, Rabbi Nelson Bar Oshia disagrees. He says no, Mishalav. The money has to come from the parents, but the you know there's still time and energy and effort, and with the parents' credit card, so to speak. Interestingly enough. There's no definitive conclusion in the Gemara. Both opinions are mentioned. There's no line where the Gemara says, we thought about it, and this is the final ruling. This is the Psak. However, the Gemara does give a story in the continuation, and where it tells us, O Rulei Rabbanan, Rabbi Yirmiya himself had a practical question in this regard, and the Rabbanan, the broader consensus of rabbis, Oru, they gave a Psak. And they told his son, because he was, Rav was in need, command to Amr Mishel Av. They said, actually, we, they ruled in that story, it's the parents' money, it's not a financial obligation uh, on the children. And the Gemara itself says, one second, one second. It's not just that Rabbi Gottlieb had a good point, that you know, usually when you have mitzvahs, you have to pay for them. Specifically, when it comes to Kibar Aim, there's another reason to think that you should have to pay for it. After all, we mentioned, not last week's share, but two weeks ago, that one of the ways the Gemara highlights how significant Kibar Ava'im is, is by emphasizing that it is parallel to and therefore kind of a subset of our honor and respect that we have to have for God. That our parents are our creators with the lowercase c. And by our connection to our parents and our reverence and respect for our parents, that connects us to our reverence and our hopefully our respect for Hashem with the capital C. And there's a lot of Gemaras that parallel those. So it says the Gemara here in the last line, one second, we know that honoring God costs money, right? You know, keeping kosher and sending your kids to day school and all those things, that's chisaron kiss, that costs money. So then maybe honoring your parents should also cost money. So the Gemara concludes in the last phrase, it doesn't mean actually spending money according to this opinion. Bittul malacha. Indirectly. Even according to the opinion that says a child does not have to take money out of her pocket, but let's say you have a job that gets paid by the day or by the hour, and your mom needs to go to the doctor. Your mom needs help with something. Your dad needs help with something. So you might say, well, if I don't have to pay for it, maybe I also don't have to miss work for it. Right? And the answer is no, says the Gemara. Everyone agrees. Everyone agrees that missing work, even if it comes at a financial price, you have to do. To actually take money out of your pocket, that's the debate. And as I mentioned, it's not explicit in the Gemara Hadapaskin. But it's inferred because there is that story where the consensus of the rabbis did paskin, it's the parents' money. And in fact, that is the ruling that is accepted by everybody and brought down a shochan arachasosh number two. Zeshem achilo umashkeyu. Again, in the time of the, in much simpler times in the ancient world, what cost money? The eating and the drinking, right? There were the other things, you know, they didn't really have a medical system to worry about. <laughs> there was no worry about who pays the deductible. Like, there was no deduct, right? You know, the, life was simpler, more primitive, and I don't know if it's enjoyable, but life was definitely more simple then. But at least things that are obviously expensive, right? In, 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 in all time in history, food and drink cost money. So says Shachanarach, Mishel Av Ve'em, Im Yeshlo. We'll have to come back to that important caveat. But assuming that the parents have the money, so the parents, have, the parents have the money. They are infirm. They can't go to the grocery store. They can't prepare food. They can't go to the doctor. They can't buy the medicine. The question is, do mom and dad get to say, listen, we're going to use that money so that we can go on a cruise to Greece for a few days. But, you know, since you have a mitzvah to take care of us, you use your money to buy the medicine. Now, parents have money. 
Or do we say, no, no, the parents can't do certain physical things. The child has to prepare physically, but the money has to come from the parents. Paskins the Shulchan Aruch, as we already mentioned, all financial responsibility really falls on the parent, assuming that they have the money. If they have the money, then the child has to do whatever is necessary to make sure the parent is taken care of, but with mom or dad's credit card, with mom or dad's banking account. Okay, that's the psak of the uh, Shulchan Aruch, and I think it's very, very significant and very important. I think there's even somewhat philosophical implication here in terms of just the relationship between parents and children. And that even, even when children are... And this we spoke two weeks ago, the challenge psychologically, emotionally, about the role reversal. But even when that is necessary for physical matters, etc., retaining that sense of... But what it means to be a parent is to pay for things. I mean, it means a lot of things also, don't worry, I know that too. I'm both a child and a parent, so I'm the recipient and the giver. But it's a huge part of what it means to be a parent. And it's, again, assuming a parent has it, that's part of them retaining their identity and part of retaining their dignity is that I can't do certain things, I need my child to help me, but not that I need them to support me. Again, if they have no money, that we'll get to in a second. That's a different story. Hopefully that's not so practical. But if they have the money, says Shulchan Aruch, that hierarchy of the parent still being the parent remains. It's just the child has to do the things that help the parent take care of him or herself that the parent can't do by themselves. Now what's interesting is source number three. Uh, I discovered this only a few years ago, this tshuva. But there's actually a legendary story, which may or may not be the source of this, or maybe it just you know, happened more than once in history. It's possible that funny stories happen more than once, um, or memorable stories. But this is a tshuva from the Hart Svi. That was of T. Pesach Frank. He was, you know, a hundred so years ago, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, pre-state. Um, but there's a story that is similar to the one he describes here that they say over, I think, in the name of Rav Chaim Ibrisk which is the following. Let's say, in the olden days especially, right? But even now, even now, right? You live in Israel, your parents live in America or England, or in, to use in a case in America, you live in New York and they live in California. So you need to visit them. First of all, you need to visit them so they're not lonely. Maybe they have a doctor's appointment or something. They, need, they have a medical issue. Shulchan Aruch says, keep it up, aim. Ten commandments, you have to help them. This is their time. For 40, 50 years, they were perfectly healthy in parallel to you as an adult. But now they're getting older, they need your help. No question, you have to help. Oh, one second though, I went to Rabbi Gottlieb Shear, and I learned that the parents have to pay for it. So if you will pay for my ticket, I will fly. And the parents say, no, you have a mitzvah. Who has to pay? The flying is not the mitzvah. It's just that you can't do the mitzvah until you fly. So that's a little bit, in the, it's, right, it's in the gap, right? Who has to pay for that? So in the story, and this is brought down in the tshuva as well, the child said to the parent, you want me to come, fine. You've got to pay for the ticket. And I'm hoping the conversation didn't happen that way. That's sad. But if you know anything about halacha, you may know, especially, for example, I've pointed it out to my students many times. If you look at all the laws of marriage, for example, in halacha, you'll be very hard-pressed hard to find any romance. Or any, you know, because halacha is dealing not only with dry, but it's also often dealing with worst-case scenarios, right? It's the worst-case scenarios that stress the system. Right, when husband and wife are getting along and everyone's happy to do whatever they can for each other, you don't need the shacharach to say, husband has to take out garbage, or whatever it would say, right? These things are only written for the cases where the couples can't figure it out on their own in a more amicable, healthy way. So that's true about all halacha. So you would think that, you know, in a normal situation, whatever, whoever was paying for it, it would just be an obvious, natural, loving thing. But hypothetically, and it may not be even sometimes hypothetical, dad, mom, you want me to come? Great, you know, you send me the ticket, I'm willing to come. After all, I learned in Rabbi Gottlieb Shear that it's supposed to be for the parent. 
And the parent says, no, the keyboard I'm the medicine I'll pay for. It's not my fault you chose to move to New York or Baltimore or Israel so far away from your parents. Who's right? So at first glance, you might say, the child's right. The Shochan Arapaskind, the parents have to pay. You send me the ticket, I'm willing to come. I'm even willing to take off work. Is that true? Is that correct? So both in here in the Tshuva, in Rav Tzipesa Frank, and in the story, they paskin not that way. He says, or the way, the way the story goes, you know, which was even before there would be trains or anything. I mean, I take it back, there were trains, I guess, in the, in the time of the story. The question was, do I have to take a train, I don't know, from all the way from Minsk to Pinsk or wherever? Or what? So, so they so said, I, my parents have to pay and send me the ticket. So Chaim said, you're right. The parents have to pay for a ticket. If not, then you have to walk. <laughs> in other words, you're Chaim to get there. Why do you want the plane ticket? Why do you want the train ticket? That's not for the mitzvah. For the mitzvah, you could walk. It's for your convenience. Who wants to walk? That's a long schlep. So for your convenience, that's not the mitzvah. That's your convenience. For that, you have to be willing to pay. If your parents are willing to pay, it's wonderful. Again, in a normal, healthy situation, if the parents have the money, I'm sure the parents would be happy to pay. But if the parents don't have the money or the relationship's a little more awkward, so you're not paying for the mitzvah. You're paying for your convenience. You want to walk? Walk. You don't want, you don't want to walk? Okay, then that's, a, that's not the mitzvah per se. So that's a very sharp insight. I just would add, and that's what he passes in verse number three, where it's underlined. You're not paying for the mitzvah when you buy the ticket. Right? You're paying for convenience. You don't want to be exhausted and all schlepped out that you have to walk the whole way to use an extreme example. So that's a fascinating and sharp point. And we have to think about that in life in general, including in Kibbutz Avayim, but not limited. Right? A lot of times we're not, we think we're paying for the thing. We're not paying for the thing. We're paying for our convenience to make the thing easier. That's not the same thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. It would be as if, I'll just give you a parallel, again, not to editorialize about this, especially since uh, it would reflect maybe not well on me personally. But if a person would say, I have to spend, you fill in the obscene amount of money, for Pesach, because I'm going to the hotel. Right? That's actually not accurate. You're not paying for Pesach with the hotel bill. You're paying for all the benefits and the convenience of not having to make Pesach. And that costs a lot more than just Pesach. Right? So not, you, you're paying for a lot of things, and maybe it's a legitimate expense, maybe it's a wonderful expense, but it's not Pesach. Pesach doesn't have to be in the hotel. So similarly here also, you're paying for the ticket. That's not the Kibbutz Avayim. The Kibbutz Avayim is what you help. This is the convenience. So that being said, and I think it's a very sharp insight, and again, in general, we should just think about that. A lot of times we're paying for things that are, we, can, we, can, we confuse ourselves. We think we're paying for the thing. It's not. We're paying for something else. And in our culture now, we're very much built on convenience and things like that. Again, I'm, I'm a product of the same culture. I'm not criticizing it per se. I think we should just be aware of it. But last thing I want to mention on this one point is that in a more recent context, a more modern context, Shlomo Zaman Orbach and others point out this idea of, you know, well, you could walk. I mean, that's true if it's actually physically possible, right? If you live in America and your parents live in, in Europe or in Israel or whatever, you actually can't walk. <laughs> so Shlomo Zalman said, in those kind of cases, in the shtetl or when you were living from one shtetl to another and it was convenient, to, you know, the five-day walk or a, you know, a three-hour train ride is one thing. Then you're really paying for conveniences. But if you physically can't get there without a plane ticket or a train ticket or whatever, so then that is part of the mitzvah. That's not convenience. And then Rosh Hashanah Paskin, that a parent would have to pay for it. 
Again, a child who can afford it may be happy to pay for it. Again, I'm talking in, 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 in real relationships, these things can be very fluid. But in terms of the letter of the law, the dry law, he didn't disagree with the story, he just said you have to know how to apply the story with some seichel. Because in a modern context where people live very far away and you really can't get to certain places without that expense, then that would be included uh, in, the, in the parent's need, not the child's convenience. Moreover, let's say the child says, no, Taka, I will walk. I always wanted to bike from New York to Chicago. So now I'm going to do it. It'll take me a week. But the doctor's appointment is tomorrow. So then also says Rishlam Zaman Arbach and others. Okay, so then it's not the convenience. The ticket is to help the parent get what they need. That's part of the mitzvah. It's not just the convenience. So again, the story and the framework that it, in, that it introduces, I think, is important. But applying it, especially in a modern context where people do tend to live very far away and we're used to being able to travel great distances you know, with the bracha of technology. So there, it's not so much convenience always as much as it is really necessary to fulfill the mitzvah. Um, last but not least on this, before we move to our second part of the shir, which is actually uh, some of the medical procedures or bathing with parents, but I want to discuss a little bit more about the, the money. And that is what the Shacharach alluded to, which is nebuch, nebuch, nebuch. But this is real life too. Sometimes parents don't have. Sometimes parents never had. There are many families in which the children have more money than their parents. That's for sure. Uh, or maybe the parents did, but if they lived to a very ripe old age, they, have, they could have been retired for 25 years. They, they, by the time some of these expenses really started accruing, the parent could have gone through their savings, with social security, whatever the case may be. So that's what the Shulchan Aruch said. All of this was only true if the parent doesn't have. Excuse me, does have. But if the parent doesn't have, the child has no right to say, it's not my, it's not my problem. I'm happy to come to the doctor, but you've got to pay for it, but I don't have any money. So then it does devolve on the parent, excuse me, on the child, excuse me. And take a look at source number four. Shachanach makes this explicit. In Ein La'av, let's say the parent doesn't have money. V'yesh la'ben abarach Hashem, child does have money. Kofen oso v'zon aviv ki yachal. Then, again, you'd hope you, again, this is a good example, again, what I mentioned before. You'd hope you wouldn't have to force the child. You'd hope a child would be loving enough to be happy to do it. But in theory, in worst case scenarios for the Shachanach, we would even force, the Bezdin would even force and coerce and tax maybe even physically force, in the olden days, a child to support his or her parents if they weren't willing, assuming that the parent didn't have and the child did have. Now, an interesting kind of nuance to this, I won't, we won't spend too much time on it, but an interesting nuance to this, which the Ramah mentions in the continuation, you see after the big, uh, in bold, hey, get mol, hey, those are the notes of the Ramah, so you see in the smaller letters, so he alludes to the fact that if you have a situation in which the parent doesn't have money, and therefore the child's going to pay, not just for the, you know, the parent, child's going to pay for everything, because thank God he or she has money and the parent doesn't have money. Says the Ramah, that's a mitzvah to do it, but it's tzedakah. It's not technically kibbutz aveim, because technically kibbutz aveim, you're not chayiv. We paskin, kibbutz aveim is the parent's money, not the child's. Just because the parent doesn't have any money doesn't change the halacha. What it means is that, no, no, and then we, we all have people we give. We give causes, we give poor people, we give all sorts of things. Tzarchei amcha merubim. Charity starts at home. That's a principle in halacha. People say, well, I can't, I can't give tzedakah because I'm supporting my children. I can't give tzedakah because I have a great aunt, Nebuchadnezzar, who lives wherever and I pay for the nurse. No, you are, that is tzedakah. Why is that not tzedakah? Charity starts at home. On the contrary, if you had a stranger who needs money and a relative who needs money, the, the halacha is a halacha. Priority always goes to family. Charity starts at home. Where many of us are familiar with the idea of aniyeh ircha kodmin. Yes, if there's a Hanafsa Scala in Chicago, and there's a Hanafsa Scala in Beit Shemesh. There, a campaign to build a mikvah 
in Herzliya or a mikvah in Beit Shemesh. So local needs you're allowed to prioritize. So what's more, what's more local than Beit Shemesh? Your parents, wherever they are, it's called local. Your relatives, your children, your, that's called tzedakah. Why is that important to stress? Because the truth is that there's a limit to how much you have to give in tzedakah. So these, again, I'm hoping that 90% of cases this is not so practical. But if this would become real relevant, it does become complicated. Okay, the child's going to pay, but are there limits to how much he has to pay? Again, in A, it's 99% not practical because hopefully the parents have enough money, and B, even when they don't, between the children, hopefully they're happy to give if they have to. So I don't know how many times it actually would come to a rough, like, okay, I have to give, but how much do I have to give, and where's the limit? You know, in 20 plus years of being a rabbi, I never got that shayla. I don't know if any rabbi did. Maybe they did. I don't want to spend too much time on it. I'm just bringing it to your attention that it is an interesting uh, nuance. If and when, if and when parents are being supported by children, if and when that happens, so it goes, it's obvious, but we should s- stress it because the post can do stress it. For example, in source number five, the children have an abundant obligation to do that with sensitivity. Now you can imagine, again, with all the things we'd be describing. I mean, what's the scenario we're describing here? Right, a parent who has all sorts of needs and can't afford to pay for them themselves and now needs a child. How painful must that be for a parent? Right, that would be very demeaning, very sad. Now, if you have no choice, you have no choice. But says, again, it's already mentioned in Shulchan Aruch, but source number five of Sternbach just elaborates on it from a kind of a contemporary lens. And he says there in source number five, if the parent really needs the help, it's tzedakah and the child has to pay for it if necessary. We'll see what's underlined. If you'll say, but if I, give, if I take care of my parent who has this procedure, there'll be no money for the day school, and no money for the local mikvah, and no money for the Tom Shabbos. Exactly, because your parent comes first. Even if it's all your maestro money, all your tzedakah money, but a parent has to, in, in theory, if that would be necessary, you have to do that. However, he adds in the middle of the second line, source number five, came, but if, you act, if that's the scenario, also the saper of you, shizel most tzedakah. I mean, the parent, I assume, is going to... If you can have a scenario which the parent doesn't even know who paid for it. I'm just giving a hypothetical. You, you could, you, where you could say to your parent, oh, yeah, I just got off the phone with Mucheret, I, just got, I, made a, I, I, I made an appeal, and don't worry, the insurance is going to cover it. And the parent doesn't even know that you're paying for it. That'd be, that's the best. Or some other scenario. But even if, even if, even if, the parent knows that the child's paying for it, says of Sternbach, but make sh- it shouldn't be that they think you're, they're getting tzedakah from you. What would be the nuance he's describing? He means to say, if you would say, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, we're not going to the Shultunah this year because I paid for your MRI. And so I had a limited number of tzedakah. The rabbi told me my tzedakah goes to you, so it went to you. I, no one would talk that way. I mean, no normal would. But even if they should get the message, it would be inappropriate. You know, let them think you have so much money that it's, you don't even have to think about it. That's what he's trying to say. Don't, again, it, it's, a lot of this is common sense if it's a loving relationship and people have a modicum of emotional intelligence. There could be a million scenarios we can't imagine or describe all of them right now, but each case and each scenario, do whatever you can, he says, to preserve the dignity of the parent and obviously make them feel as good as possible about not having, that they're accepting whatever they have to accept. Last but not least on this, actually, two, I'll take two quick points on this. Number one is, what about multiple children? This is where things do sometimes come to the rabbi. Multiple children. So if you look in source number four, Shachanach says, at the end of the line, 
Im yesh banim rabim, mechashim lefi mamun shalahem. Very tricky, but the psakul shachan is, it's not just, well, we have four children, so divide it equally. Sometimes one child makes more money than the other. Some siblings have more money than other siblings. It should be done based on what the children can afford. It should not just be the standard divide by four, divide by five. That's the honest conversation. So-and-so is doing better, so-and-so is struggling more. Everyone does what they can proportionally. And if one of the children or multiple children are aniyim, themselves very poor, then they're potter. And then the wealthier, if there are, I mean, if there aren't, there aren't, but if there are wealthier siblings. Um, the post can discuss what about a son-in-law. Let's say the daughter wants to give, but she maybe she's a stay-at-home mom, she doesn't make money, but her, 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 her husband does, but he's a son-in-law, does he have to pay? The answer is yes. But again, these are complicated scenarios. Again, in well-functioning, everyone loves each other to get along families, people figure this out without the rabbi. But I don't need to tell you, a lot of families aren't as well-functioning, um, and even if everyone gets along with mom and dad, not everyone gets along with each other, sometimes half of them do get along with mom and dad, sometimes, I mean... Real life is real life, and it can be more complicated. And there are halachos and that you would need a shayla for, but um, in, in the, because in more scenario, most scenarios, it, it, it's okay. Last but not least, I'll just mention something in source number six. I'll mention it outside. This alludes to something we discussed, I think, in a previous year, and even mention it now, which is there can be these in-between areas. I give the example, I think it was in a previous year, of picking up your parents from the airport. Right? Where sometimes, it's like you could say, I'll send the cab. And it's a shliach. Can I do my mitzvah through a shliach? The answer is no. Sometimes your personal involvement is the mitzvah. It's not the ride. It's that you came. Right? I gave that as an example, I think, in previous year. So source number six, he discusses a similar thing, but with money. Let, again, it's very dated. But let's say he's talking about a parent, a child who moves away. And this is, again, a separate point. But he makes the, the whole premise of source number six in this tshuva was that children are allowed to move away. You don't have to say, well, because the halacha says that you have to take care of your parents, so you'll never be able to move down the block. Because you'll, then how, you, how can I move? Forget how, forget how can I move to Teaneck. I'm certainly not going to be able to move to Chicago and Los Angeles and keep on going. I have to move, stay on the block right in Brooklyn, right next to them, right in Chicago, right next to them. So that is not true halakhically. A child's allowed to live his or her life. The question is, once you move far away, what becomes your, you still have obligations. So one scenario he's discussing here is, do you have to stay in touch? Do you have to write? And it sounds very dated, you know, sending letters. It would have been good if when I was 18 in yeshiva for the year I would have gotten this because I think I may have told you the story. I got in big trouble because it was like about a month where I didn't call my parents. And finally, my parents, to, again, to date the whole story, sent a fax. <laughs> so it would be clear in writing to the yeshiva, tell David, if he doesn't call this week, not to bother calling. <laughs> now, I assume that they were exaggerating, but the point did come through. It was one of my low points as a child. I don't even, I don't even remember why. It just, again, again, it was like stupid for a week or two, and then it became, you know, you just get too scared. I don't want to call them because it's been three weeks and they're going to get more upset at me. And then, okay, but that four, I would, I would have gone forever. I was just too scared to like come clean. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why I didn't call. It was nothing good. But my parents were furious. So let's say it would have been me spending the money on the phone call or money on a letter. So nothing Gestetner here, source number six, is of course a child is obligated to stay in touch with his or her parents, obligated to see how they're doing, to show how he or she is doing. And then he says, well, maybe, okay, but maybe the parents have to pay for the letter. Again, Every parent probably is paying for the letter anyway. This is kind of a hypothetical. But again, he, he suggests, as, as just an example, he says, this idea of staying in touch, it's not just that they hear your voice or they read the letter. It's the fact that they know you cared enough to write the letter and even spend the money on the stamp or whatever. That's part of the mitzvah. So again, I don't want to get, again, since the, the, the scenario is so dated, I don't want to get uh, stuck on the specifics. But I think the principle that he's mentioning is an interesting one that has to be thought of and could be applied in more contemporary circumstances. Which is sometimes, 
the money may be obligatory on the child if the money is the statement of respect. You know, like I said, you know, the amount of gas it would cost, I don't know, to go drive uh, to pick a parents up at the airport. Or if you have to take off work and you're going to get docked some pay. So the child might say, I don't have to. We said that the parents have to pay for it. Maybe, but it's also possible in scenarios like that, you could, again, I'm not saying for sure, but each case has to be evaluated. It could be that you would an- analyze a situation and conclude that, no, no, it's the very act of giving up of your time and your parent knows that you don't ha- you're going to lose money by coming. That that itself might be the great respect, that is the respect that you're showing. Like you're willing to spend a little money on the call or the, on, on the whatever. That itself might be the respect in which case then it's not paying to do the mitzvah. The paying is the mitzvah. And, so, and in such cases, if the child could afford it, they would be obligated. Okay, there's probably even more to talk about, but let's move on to a very sensitive and very important final topic, which is the broader issue of are there limits to the actual physical care we have to give our parents? And the answer potentially is yes. And let's begin with the issue of bathing. Um, in the primary sources, the issue of bathing is discussed with father and son, and it is gender specific. So I will share that discussion with you. Then we'll talk about with mothers and daughters. And then the even trickier cases of a daughter and a father or a, or a son and a mother. But the actual sources discuss uh, two males, the father uh, and the son. So uh, I don't have it for you on the sheet, but the general halacha, just stam, everyone's healthy, everyone's good. Nothing to do with that. It's 100% usher for a father and a son to bathe together. Now, I don't mean like in the same bath. That's just ludicrous. I mean, in the olden days, you went to a bathhouse. Or nowadays, you say, go to the mikvah. Now, again, actually going is not the problem. It's the son should never see the father naked. That's absolutely usher. It's brought down in Shulchan Aruch. You shouldn't do it. Okay? Straightforward. Easy. What's much less obvious is, well, what happens when the parent is older? Now the parent needs help with the bath. That's not as clear. And that's a second source. That brings us to source number seven. Says this is in Abraisa, Masechta Smachos. In theory, most people you are allowed to go to the to the bathhouse with, even if you're going to be undressed. Certain people are prohibited, including your father or father-in-law, your mother's husband, if she if she has a second marriage, your rebbe, and more importantly for us. Aviv, you are not allowed to go to the bathhouse with your father, which we already saw, that I mentioned to you. However, in this particular source, we have a second opinion, which brings up the issue of infirmity in old age. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, end of the line, Im haya aviv nichnas Let's say the parent is just old, or sick, or both. Rabbi Yehuda's opinion is the child can bathe with the father. Not even the mikvah? Bathe, it's all it's the same thing. So the issue is not, you know, uh, the issue is seeing what you would see in either scenario. But again, the standard halacha is it's usher, even the mikvah. Again, I don't mean going. You go and, again, I don't want to, you, I, I don't need to bore you, or that, I'm not sure what that word, maybe, or, or scar you with what it's like to go to a men's mikvah. That, you know, you have enough on your head, you don't need to worry about that, okay? One thing that women don't have to worry about is the men's mikvah, okay? I have put everything else on the Eshes uh, Chayos of Israel. But the point is, there are ways in which a husband, a father can take his children and no one sees anything they shouldn't see. And there are ways that would be inappropriate. And the law is that you have to be careful about that, okay? But now we have a scenario. scenario. What if the parent is sick? The parent needs a bath. The parent needs a shower. 
So Rabbi Yehuda says, in that case, then it becomes permissible. As Rabbi Yehuda said, in Zakein, Ochola, Nechnas, Omarchito, you can go in. Can or should? He says it's allowed. He doesn't say should. He says it's allowed. But the inference, which is important for us, is this is Rabbi Yehuda. He's the second opinion. The implication is that the first opinion that the Hanakama disagrees. First opinion is categorically it's usher. And Rabbi Yehuda says, well, there's some exceptions. It sounds like the first opinion holds there's no exceptions to the rule. In other words, there's a machlokas. Can a son ever bathe his father? So how do we paskin in this machlokas? So if you take, it's not so clear, but all the contemporary post schemes seem to agree. And I give you one example, source number eight, and this is Rav Vosner in the Truth Shevet Alevi. And he points out that most Rishonim and the Shulchan Aruch and Ramam, they just bring down the halacha, a son is not allowed to bathe with his father. They don't mention the issue of getting older and firm. So what would you infer from that silence? It sounds like it's always us, sir, right? If you're going to tell me there's an exception to the rule of called old age or sickness, you would have, the Shulchan Aruch would have told me. The fact that it doesn't say, and it just says in general, it's usser, it sounds like the accepted view is the first opinion, that it should always be usser. Now what's interesting, and this is why it may be gender specific, is that there's a machlokas, it seems to be a machlokas of why this should be a problem. Why in general can't the father and the son go to the old schwitz together, or go to the, uh, the, the mikveh together? How come? So if you take a look at Rashi in the Gemara, it seems like, and this is the way some of these posts can bring it out, that itself may be the debate. There may be two different possibilities. So one possibility, which is the one that you're probably thinking of, which is kind of the way I presented it almost intuitively, is it's not respectful. You shouldn't see, you shouldn't, you shouldn't see your father undressed. Even if, I'm not talking about the daughter, I'm talking about the son. You shouldn't see your father undressed, it's not respectful. It's a, it's a lack, it's a chisaron in mora or kibbutz And it could very well be that that's Rabbi Huda's opinion. However, the post can point out, based on Rashi, that the Tanakhama apparently had a different view. And that it was a concern that if a boy will see his father's nakedness, that will remind him how he was created, how he was conceived, and his mind will wander to those type of things. I don't just mean the ichi thing that no child wants to think about, which is how they were conceived. I mean just the act of conception and making a baby. And by you seeing Dafka, your father's nakedness, you're, now you might be thinking, who would, and the answer is, men have, lots of things can, can trigger a male's sexual imagination. So maybe this is being neurotic, maybe it's realistic, but that's how Rashi interprets the Tanakama. And it seems like that would be the basis of the Machloket. Because if we're really worried about those type of inappropriate thoughts, you're never allowed to violate an Avera even to do Kibbut Aveim, right? Kibbut Aveim can't make you do an Avera. Whereas if you view it as just for the parent's honor, so yeah, normally it's for the honor I shouldn't see. But if now I'm Dafka bathing him, that is the honor to see, to help. It's interesting, Machlokes. But the bottom line is it seems like we Paskin, it really, really uh, shouldn't be done. And that is the standard thing. If anyone were to ask me, it is far preferable from a halachic and emotional perspective to have someone else do it. The but, of course, is we have all sorts of situations where that's not possible. Right? Maybe there is no aid, or maybe there is, the aid's not available, or the aid's, or someone's not strong enough. So we have all sorts of reasons why a son might have to help his father, and that is the accepted halacha, which, um, 
the Shevet Alevi himself brings down at the bottom, and many other posts. If you look at all the modern Sfarim, they pretty much always all agree on the following. The standard is a child should not be involved. So it's not fair for the parent or the child, to be honest. But it's not fair for the parent. But if there is nobody else at that moment, forget the fact that if it's life and death, that'd be obvious. But even if it's just the parent, there's nobody around. And the parent is uncomfortable and suffering and dirty and whatever. Needs a bath. And the only person who could do is the son. The answer is, if there was no other choice, it would be mutter. However, we suggest it would be better, if it's possible, for dad to wear a bathing suit. It might even be better for the son. To, of course, the son would stay dressed. But uh, the father wear a bathing suit. And if that's not possible, then the son should do his best, at least not to see the private parts of the father. Uh, even when we're permitting it. We're still very nervous about that. We still try to avoid that to preserve the dignity of the parent and whatever fears we might have for the son's uh, being triggered imagination. So that is, I'd say, the standard idea. Yeah? Same with the son and son-in-law? It's not the same level, but I would think, yes, it's the same level. But I want to mention now, not only because it's a woman's cheer, but also because I just think it's interesting, that, as I say, this discussion is all um, when it comes to... Um, when it comes to uh, father and son. The post can generally assume that we would have a different halacha with mothers and daughters. Again, based on what I said before, which is that if it's just about the respect for the mother, yeah, it's better for a daughter not to bathe her mother. Of course it's better. But if that's necessary, I don't just mean it's an emergency. I mean, even if it's necessary, a parent won't necessarily feel demeaned because they understand the child is doing this out of respect. No child wants to bathe their mother, trust me. If they're doing it, it's a, one of the ultimate acts of respect. And the assumption is that women are not like men. And while women can also have their sexual imagination triggered, we don't assume that it's as easy to trigger as for a, for a male. And uh, we're not necessarily worried about a, a girl seeing her mother undressed as we are a fa- boy seeing her father. So that's in that scenario. In the crisscrossing of genders, obviously, I think it's even more intuitive that the halacha is even more strict. Again, you, you'll, you'll barely even find a discussion of this. I don't think anyone imagined, again, unless you're talking about an actual life and death, emerge, a real emergency, no one would imagine a daughter bathing her father. Although even then, if, 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 if necessary, and especially if, you, the, if the father could have his private parts covered, um, there probably would be permission for that. But at the opposite level of son bathing his mother, so that would be only in the rarest of circumstances would that be permitted. Again, for, I think, obvious uh, reasons we don't have to go completely down the Freudian or Oedipal complex uh, to realize that it just would not be a good thing on any level for an adult male child to be seeing his mother undressed. That's not appropriate. Again, if it's an emergency, emergency, okay. But short of that, it really should not. It should not happen. Okay, let's discuss now for the next the last uh, fifteen twenty minutes that we have. Um, not just bathing, but now discuss the tipul rufui, uh, actual healthcare things. So one thing I want to discuss, just to throw out there, even though it's almost like kind of like a uh, metaphoric grenade, because the actual cases are so much more complicated and explosive. But let's start with something indirect, which is decision making. Can a child force his or her parent to have a procedure, minor or major, that the parent doesn't want to? Because the child knows it's better for the parent. The parent is being stubborn. You could also have a case where it's not just stubborn. Maybe the parent is not thinking clearly. What are the rights and responsibilities of the child in that scenario? So, huge topic. Impossible to give a rule. Other than to say, if you look at source number nine, there is some discussion about this, and it's not even limited to parents and children. 
there could be other people who can be in a position, let's say even the doctor or someone else, a healthcare provider, who know that a certain person, a fellow Jew, needs some medical attention, and the, the patient or the prospective patient says, no, I don't want to. So the halacha is, and this is in Rav Yaakov Emden, source number nine, the Morukziah, this is, I think, more or less accepted. Again, this is, the, the caveat, which is not on the source sheet, which is why this is so complicated, is there are all sorts of scenarios, like maybe even most, where it's not black and white what's the right thing to do. So if it's not black and white, either the doctor says, I'm not sure, or there's two doctors and they're arguing. This is real life. This is that. It happens all the time. So assuming the parent is of sound mind, sound mind, the parent gets to decide for him or herself. Even if the child feels strongly. Okay, that's going to take care of already, I don't know how many percent of the cases. What if it's a case where it's black and white? It's black and white. The, child, the parent needs this, or else they're really going to be indirectly or maybe even directly causing harm to themselves. And the Shulchan Aruch and the Morakotziah discuss all sorts of minor things, ad kerekacht, even things like amputation. Parents says, I'm interested. And child says, you have gangrene. If you don't amputate, you're going to die. So, let's, so that's, on the one hand, you might die. On the other hand, you could, no one wants to be amputated. That's not, that's not just a parent being stubborn. Oh, I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get my arm cut off. I don't want my leg cut off. So in all of these cases, here in source number nine, he rules, if we're talking about something in which the, again, only Hashem knows for sure if anything's going to work. But if, from a medical perspective, it's black and white that this is what's necessary, <coughs> says the Shachanara, or says the Morakzi, excuse me, number nine, Vadai the Olam Kofin Lachol Hamasarev Makom Sakana, Bechol Inyan Vaofin Shnitna Tarushas Raposo. If this is considered a normal medical procedure, to the extent that Halacha would sanction it in general, even if the patient doesn't want it, we force them. Again, this doesn't necessarily always happen in modern societies because there's such a thing. Every modern society, including Israel, has a patient bill of rights, which is not necessarily Shulchan Aruch. So again, this could be complicated in real life, but I'm speaking not just from a halachic perspective. From a halachic perspective, if it's a case of Bekuach Nefesh, then not only does the child get to force the parent, anyone could force the patient. It's not your life. We know this is a Jewish value, right? We reject suicide on a philosophical grounds. Again, people have mental health and they're not responsible for sometimes what they do. And that's probably 99% of suicides nowadays. But in general, the reason the halachas frowned upon suicide, especially if the person was of sound mind, is because it's not your right. You don't get to throw it away. The whole premise of bodily autonomy, upon which is one of the you know, two or three main pillars of all Western society, is rejected by halacha. Right? We, we reject it as a matter of philosophical principle on the abortion question. But it's not only about women, it's not only about abortion. We reject it for anybody, male or female. It's not your body. Hashem gave you a gift. You're a custodian. You don't just get to throw it away. So that would be true for anybody, at least in theory. You could force somebody to have a, a procedure. Again, maybe not in 2023, I don't know. But at least in halacha you could. So certainly if it was a parent and a child, again, if the child knows that this is what the parent needs, and the parent, and it's clear the doctor say what's necessary, uh, then you could theoretically course. Again, I'm speaking for obvious reasons only in broad strokes because... A, many cases are more gray than that. And B, even if halacha would allow it, doesn't mean that the doctor, the, if, the, if the parents see, if the doctor sees, if the hospital sees that the parent has sound mind, they're not going to listen to the parent or the rabbi or anybody. What the, if they want to put them on these breathing machines? So we discussed this previously. So the answer is, again, this is why we would need 10 whole shirim on that. But I mentioned, I think it was in last week's shir, by far and away, I should say by far and away, by far and away the best thing to do, or I'll say this way, one of the, most kind chasadim you can give your children 
is to have a, a living will or a healthcare proxy in which you make it clear in your lifetime when you are of sound mind, if I should ever be in one of those situations, this is what I want. Now, I don't know how many of these documents exist produced in Israel, although they might, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. In America, both the OU and the Aguda have things like this. And I believe, I'm not sure what the differences are, but I believe the common denominator of both of them is that it's not only that you say what you would want generally, but you're certainly encouraged to pick a rabbi and say it should be, you know, my children in consultation with my rabbi, and you write down the name, or this Beitin, or this whatever, should make those decisions if I'm incapable. But broadly speaking, these are my wishes. I do or don't want, etc. You know, et so the more you don't have to put your children in that situation, uh, the better. First of all, because what child wants to have to make those decisions if they can, don't have to? And as we all know, very often the siblings are not going to agree. So you're really creating tremendous tension um, if you don't, if you don't uh, address this. And there's no reason when you're healthy you shouldn't. No one wants to, I mean, the reason is no one wants to think about it. But you should think about it, and you should do your children uh, that, that uh, chesed. Okay, let's uh, finish up the last 10 minutes or so uh, with something a little less dramatic, but the question of actual medical procedures. So if we're talking about physical therapy and, or occupational therapy, something like that, you know, you want to, as long as it's l'chvikvod, the parent, sometimes they they might prefer to have their child helping them. That's such nakas. There wouldn't seem to be anything wrong with that if there's no risk to a parent getting hurt in the process or anything like that. Um, but where the issue does come up is if there is a risk of the parent getting hurt, um, especially if the parent would bruise or bleed. And this comes from the Mishnah and the Gemara in Sanhedrin in source number 10. Um, the Mishnah, which is not on the page, uh, makes the point that um, it's a pasuk in Chumash, Maka Aviv, V'imo Mos Yumas. If you injure your parent, that's a capital crime. In the time of the Beis Migdash, the baiting would kill you by strangulation. Right? To actually injure your parent, you know, to punch your parent, to slap your parent, something like that, if it was an injury that caused even bruising and certainly bleeding. Not, you know, a little nothing would just be disrespectful, but it's also no matter what. But the capital offense would be if you really created bodily harm to a parent. Okay, so that's in a case of malice. What in the case of good intentions? You'd want to, you want to help give your parent the shot. You want to give your parent their insulin. You want to help, right? So this is, a, again, they didn't have insulin and they didn't have shots in the old days, but they had leeches. That was the, that was the modern medicine of the day. And apparently when you took off the leech, you would see some blood, right? That's all purpose of the leech, right? The leech is sucking out the blood. So in the Gemara, it talks about exactly this case. Ben Maush Yakis Dam Laviv, right? Let's say every Jewish parent's great nachas, my child became a leecher. Or I don't, even, I don't know what the verb is. What's the profession called? I don't even know. A blood letter. That's the right word. A blood letter. Oh, such nachas. Did you see my son Yanko? Gary, he finished first in his class in bloodletting. He got the best residency in bloodletting. Okay, every parent, Jewish parent's a big dream. So now he says, okay, now my parent is older and he needs bloodletting. Can the child do it? You see, by the way, you know, this is very dated. It only talks about sons. You know, if I write a new Gemara, I'll have to say, you know, my daughter the doctor. But in the, old time, in the olden times, that was not so conceivable. But my, my son the doctor was always a dream of Jewish parents, even in the time of the Gemara, apparently. So are they allowed to bloodlet the child or the parent or not? So the Gemara seems to say yes. It actually gives one or two different reasons. Either if you have to rechakamocha, anything you would want to do for yourself. So any parent would, in theory, if I could do it for myself, I would. I certainly don't see this as a bad thing. I would even do it to myself if I could. So why should my child be able to do it? Or, even more narrowly, the, uh, the Gemara continues with a second opinion and explains that, no, we have other halachos um, where we see that the same action could be prohibited if it's done with malice. But if it's done through altruistic and loving, beneficial motivation, 
It could be mutter. Again, just as an analogy, you're not allowed to... We, we, we believe, not necessarily in the modern version of it, but we believe in animal rights too in halacha. We have thought of it way before the, the progressives. Right? You're not allowed to just beat an animal. But let's say it was necessary for the health of the animal. Or for some other beneficial reason. It would be permitted. So, so too by analogy, says the Gemara, it should be permitted. We don't say that it's this horrible crime if a, parent, uh, if a child's uh, taking blood from the parent for medical reasons and he bleeds. That's not the same thing as you, you know, punching your parent. Right? Seems obvious, but the Gemara is the conclusion. But, 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 here's the but. Despite that somewhat intuitive, commonsensical conclusion of the Gemara, the Gemara continues and tells two stories of great rabbis, Rav and Marbet Ravina. And in both cases, the stories say they didn't let their children do even minor medical procedures on them because they're worried that it would cause a wound or cause bleeding. In the case of Rav, he had a splinter. He was in pain. But he didn't let his son take out the splinter because maybe there would be some blood then. Or in the case of Maravishi, he had some kind of a blister or something and he didn't let it. He, it needed to be you know, popped or something like that to get the pus out and clean it out. But it also often will lead to bleeding. He didn't let his son do that. Because maybe he would go too far. Yeah, the actual part that's necessary for medical reasons we just saw seems to be mutter. You can't once you once you start doing it, maybe it'll be bleeding more than it had to. Maybe the child pushed a little too hard. Maybe the first time he went to get the splinter, he missed. So what's the conclusion of the Gemara? It sounded like it was mutter, and then the stories seem to say, whoa, not every rabbi allowed it. So because of that confusion, there's actually a machloket. And the machloket in the Rishonim, the Ramam and the Rosh and others, all the big guys get involved in this machloket, it leads to the following compromise psak in the Shochanar. Look at source number eleven. And it gives the example. If a person has has, has a splinter. Coach Tachuv Laviv, your father has a splinter. The child Loyutio, the child should not be the one who removes the splinter. Because maybe you'll wound the parent more than necessary. Or bloodletting, or rofe, or a doctor, anything like that. You shouldn't do it. We understand that this is not elder abuse, not parental abuse, right? We understand this is loving, this is trying to be helpful. But the fear is that once you do this, you know, anything could go wrong, and if you accidentally make the ch- parent have more pain than necessary, more bleeding than necessary. We're, you know, this is a very serious avera. It's a very serious avera. Not only is it a Torah prohibition, it's a capital offense. So we don't want to play around with it. Says Shachanarach, we'd rather be machmir. Comes along the Ramos, or in the middle of the, lo- in the, middle of the second line. Yes, when do we say be better safe than Sorry. If the parent could easily have someone else take out the splinter, someone else give the IV, someone else administer the insulin or whatever the case may be, or check the blood sugar. But if there's nobody else, now you say there's nobody else, but tomorrow I'll go to the doctor. Why do I have to have my son the doctor, or just my son the lawyer, or my son the rabbi, who knows how to take out a splinter or give a shot? Why should you do it tonight? I'll just have it tomorrow by the doctor and I'll avoid the problem. That it would be great. But let's say it's something where the parent is in pain now. So I don't want to have to wait to get somebody else. And my child's right here. So it says the Ramah, in that case, you are allowed to do it. You should be careful, but the child is allowed to do it. If there's no one else to do it and the parent is uncomfortable, whatever the parent gives permission to the child to do, the child is absolutely permitted to do. And this, again, similar to the bathing thing. It's a very parallel discussion 
this is pretty much the consensus. You'll find this in all the svarim that all things being equal, even if the parent, even if the child is the OT, the PT, the doctor, the nurse, it's not preferred. Again, it's probably not preferred on a lot of levels, but including halachic, it's not preferred for you to be administering medical things to your parent. That is not the ideal. But there can be scenarios in which there is no one else around, and the parent is suffering and in pain. In that case, it is absolutely permitted, even though there is a risk. But in that case, we understand that it's a relatively small risk, perhaps, and obviously everyone is, has intention only for the best of the parent. It would, anything, even God forbid, would happen, would obviously be accidental and coming from the best of intentions. And therefore, if we could avoid it, we still try to avoid it. But if we can't avoid it, it is permissible. Now, I want to just end with, I'm anticipating your question, perhaps. What, means, what does it mean we can't avoid it? What is it? Okay, what is it? Well, I want to get to this first anyway. Okay, what does that mean? Right, the, the Ramal gave a very simplistic formulation. If there's no one else, what does that mean? Nobody else. What if I can wait till tomorrow? Or what if I live in Israel and I have to wait three weeks till they get the appointment? How long does that mean? And what scenarios are there? So if you take a look at source number 13, this is the dying, the Minchas Yisok, the dying from Manchester, before he eventually moved to Israel. Not everyone moves from England to Israel, just the good ones. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, but even from Manchester, not just from London. So the Minchas Yisok, the source number 13, he describes a scenario where there are people who can do things, but you'll have to wait. There's a hamtana, right? You're still waiting for Mukhera to call you back, or whatever the case may be, right? And it could be in America too. It's not, a, it's not, it's not perfect in America either. Uh, you have to, I know it's not perfect in England, that's for sure, the, the national health system. Um, so we don't want to just pick on Israel, but sometimes you have to wait. So if I, why, do I, why should I wait? My son's a doctor, my daughter's a doctor, my daughter's a nurse, whatever. So says the Minchas he thinks that's obviously permitted. When the Ramah says there is nobody else, it doesn't just mean in the olden days where there's one doctor in the town, and of course then there's nobody else. He says even nowadays, if it means you're going to have to wait, and again, if you, can, if, you, if you can wait, maybe you should, but if you're really uncomfortable, you're in pain, let alone there's a medical reason that you want to be in urgency, but even if it's not medical, just pain. I don't want to have to wait two weeks to get the appointment. I don't want to wait two days to get the appointment. I've got a, a son or daughter right here who can do it. Or he says another variation at the end of the piece, what if it's the kind of thing you need every day? It could be insulin. Or like every day I gotta find somebody else. I have a, my, my daughter on her way to work. Every day we'll just stop in and take care of it. So it's gonna be such an inconvenience. So, there again, in all these cases, he says, if it's really most likely not gonna be a problem. And anyway, the child, of course, is doing this out of love. And it really would be a huge inconvenience to, or a pain to the parent. And the parent wants the child, then it would be permitted. Again, it's not ideal, but in these scenarios, it would be allowed. And last but not least, um, go back to source number 12 for a second, because this is, not only is it the convenience of having my son or my daughter, right? If you ask anyone, they'll tell you, my daughter, she's the best doctor, the best PT, the best nurse. My son, of course. I should go to a second-rate doctor? My son's the number one. So whether he, he or she is or isn't, that's a separate issue. But if, the, if they are, says the Orach HaShokha, source number 12, if the child's a better doctor. I, I, can, I don't have to even... Not only is there another doctor in town, I get an appointment this afternoon. But my, my, my son's out of the department. My daughter's out of the department. Why should I take a second-rate person? My child's better. Okay. For most things, the second doctor and the third doctor and the tenth doctor are just good enough. But first of all, psychologically, it still may be important to the parent. Or what if it really does make a difference? And you want to get the best doctor and have it be the best doctor really is your son or daughter. So says Archa Shon, that also is permitted. Again, the Ramah said, if there is nobody else. But he didn't mean it like in a straitjacket. Literally, there's nobody else. 
there's nobody else convenient, I have to wait, I have a psychological preference, I want my child, I think my child is better, all those scenarios would be permissible as well. Again, so just to conclude, for a lot of reasons, it's not ideal. I think even in a medical establishment, they would not consider it ideal. But nevertheless, there can be situations in which either necessary or on the margins, uh, more convenient or better or preferred by the parent. And in those cases, again, usually we would counsel parents to avoid it. And again, most children would probably want to avoid it. But if it's necessary and if it's something you know, minor, like the things we're describing, and I don't know, I don't know if it's, I don't even even be allowed, but it really would not be typical you know, for a child to operate on the parent or something like that. That's a whole other level. I don't even know if that's even done. Uh, I don't know if I ever heard of it in my life. Maybe it does happen. I don't know, but that would be very rare. But I'm talking about these other things, an IV, a shot, some physical therapy, uh, the blood sugar, things like that, um, where my child is an EMT, a nurse, a paramedic, a doctor, a physical therapist, whatever, and the parent the child would know how. Again, it's still preferable not. But there are all sorts of scenarios that we just described in which it would be permissible. Oh, oh, oh the other thing, by the way, also, let's say you're cheap. I don't have to pay for it. My child will do it for free. So that's also, again, that would be, again, whether you, that's a shikul that a parent has to make. Is that really the right way to make a decision? How much money are we talking about here? But nevertheless, that would be theoretically uh, a long wait, or finances, those are all reasons in theory that a parent would want their child to do it, and that would be considered permissible. Okay, yes,